The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon and Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, fish 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was torn, or the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful scene in which you surprised, startled, greeted, and fed your disciples. Would you feed us today? Would you reign over us, risen Lord? May we know the power of your resurrection and the hope of our own. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. If you're, if you're a sports fan, you know that sometimes it all comes down to the last shot. An entire season of basketball can come down to 3.4 seconds on the clock. The Super Bowl is often determined by who gets the ball for the final drive. It's the last lap that matters, the final round on Sunday afternoon, the two out at bat in the ninth inning. Everything that precedes this is, of course, vitally important. But the ultimate outcome will be determined by what happens at the very end of the game. Now, I don't think that the Apostle Paul was much of an athlete. We know he wasn't much of a physical specimen, but I know that he understood this principle. You can see it in the way that he writes. One of his longest letters was to the church in Corinth. We know it as 1 Corinthians. It's an extended argument in which Paul moves from controversy to controversy over 16 dense chapters. He challenges his friends on matters of sexuality, their habit of suing each other, their practice of eating idol meat and the way they worshiped. Each of these topics is important, and Paul handles each one with care. But the letter comes down to the last topic that he tackles in chapter 15, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Every other controversy in this letter is about the Corinthians' behavior. This controversy is about what they believe. And for Paul, what they believe about the resurrection, it is more important than everything else. 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, it may be the most famous chapter in 1 Corinthians, but chapter 15 is more important. Without it, and without the argument that Paul makes in chapter 15, chapter 13 is a waste of breath. As Paul says in our reading this morning, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 together in order to see why it is that Paul saves the resurrection for last. And as we do, we're going to learn that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just at the heart of our faith, it's central to how we view the world around us and how we think about ourselves. So I hope you'll turn there with me. You can find it on page 961 of the Red Bibles. You're going to want to be able to follow along as we begin with verse 1. Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul has covered all kinds of topics up to this point, but now he seems to say, all right, let's get down to business. He wants to remind his friends of the essentials of the gospel, the good news, that he first preached to, to, to them. Notice in these verses how the gospel shapes the past, present, and future of their lives. They received it in the past, they stand in it now, and they are being saved for the future. The whole scope of their lives is shaped by the gospel, unless, of course, they believed it in vain. And by this, Paul means believing an incomplete or watered-down version that has nothing to do with the salvation actually offered by Jesus. Ask most people to boil Christianity down to its essence, and what you are most likely to get is love your neighbor as yourself. But that is not the heart of the gospel as Paul sees it. Important, yes, but only because of what Jesus did at the very end of his life. Paul explains this in verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Most scholars believe that Paul's quoting an early summary of the faith here, something like an early creed. In it, four verbs summarize the work of Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, he rose, and he appeared. One of the most important things for us to know about Jesus is that he died. And his death had a purpose. It was a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus went willingly to the cross so that we might be forgiven. More than simply dying, however, Jesus was buried. Paul, or whomever originally penned this short confession, wants to make clear that Jesus was shut up in a tomb for several days. He wasn't just unconscious for a few hours. He didn't fall into a coma and then revive. He died on that cross. The centurion, whose own life depended on the successful conclusion of every execution, made sure of this by stabbing him in the side with a spear. Jesus died, and Jesus was buried. End of story. 
Except, of course, that it wasn't the end of the story. Because Paul tells us that on the third day, he was raised. Now, the tense of this third verb, it's different from died and buried. Those verbs indicate simple singular action in the past. He was raised is a perfect passive, which indicates an ongoing state of affairs. In other words, Jesus rose and he's still risen. So as we affirm in one of our communion liturgies, we say Christ has died, Christ is risen. He rose in order to live forever. And when he arose, he appeared to his followers. That's the fourth verb. In the same way that saying he was buried affirms that he died, saying he appeared affirms that he was raised. Paul is offering proof of Jesus' resurrection by naming the names of those who saw him. He also says that the death and resurrection of Jesus are in accordance with the scriptures. But what, is the, what exactly does he mean by this? There's not a whole lot in the Old Testament about the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, which Christian read to us a moment ago, points to his death and other passages may allude to resurrection, but there's no prophetic tradition that consistently says the Messiah is going to die and rise. What Paul seems to mean by saying that this is all in accordance with Scripture is that this gospel makes sense in light of Scripture's story and only in light of Scripture's story. If you want to understand it, you need to see it in light of the rest of Scripture. Paul continues in verse 6, where he makes clear that it wasn't just the 12 disciples who saw Jesus after he rose, but many others, including himself. So verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. More than 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. And Paul invites anyone in Corinth who might be suspicious of this claim to go and track them down and ask, because as he said, most of them were still alive when he wrote this letter. But the fact that Jesus appeared, it does more than just confirm his resurrection. It makes clear that the man who rose was the same man who had died. You remember how he showed Thomas his scars in the upper room? It's the same guy. Those 500 people recognized Jesus because he was the same man they had seen brutally murdered on the cross. What's the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel is not love your neighbor as yourself. It's this, Christ died, was buried, rose, and appeared. Now, I realize that this may feel pretty basic to those of you who've been around church for a while, but this short declaration about Jesus, it runs counter to everything we know about life and death. It runs counter to everything we know about life and death, and those new converts in Corinth, they were struggling with it. Let's skip down to verse 12, where Paul gets to the key question that he wants to discuss with his friends. He writes, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So apparently some of the folks in Corinth didn't believe that resurrection was possible. 
We don't know exactly what this meant when it came to their understanding of Jesus. It's possible that they believed that Jesus had risen, but that no one else would ever rise. Or it's possible that they believed he had, he had only risen in a spiritual or non-physical sense. And I think it's that latter idea that's more likely. And that's because of how Paul chooses to describe Jesus' resurrection. So the phrase resurrection of the dead in verse 12 it can be more literally translated as rising of the corpses. So much more graphic, isn't it? Paul uses the term necron uh, to describe the body, and it's an explicit reference to a lifeless physical body. It means corpse, and Paul uses this term 14 times in this chapter. He seems just to be hammering home the fact that Jesus' dead body, his corpse, was filled with new life and that he walked right out of the grave. Paul wants to make it absolutely clear to the Corinthians that the risen Jesus has a body and that his body was once a lifeless corpse. Read both of Paul's letters to the Corinthians and you'll see that many of the Christians in Corinth had a fundamentally negative view of the human body. In keeping with much of the religious thinking of their time, they saw bodies as inferior to the spirit or the soul of a person. They believed in an afterlife, but not in the resurrection of the dead. But to all of this, Paul says no, as he continues with his argument in verse 13. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's saying, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the gospel has no substance, faith is pointless, my entire ministry is a waste of time, all 500 witnesses are liars, sin still has power to destroy, and your loved ones who have died, they're gone forever. If there's no resurrection, there is no hope whatsoever. During the season of Lent before Easter, we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll remember that the most important term in Ecclesiastes was the word vanity. The preacher whose teaching fills Ecclesiastes said time and time again that life under the sun is vanity. It's pointless, meaningless, and ephemeral only when we look to the God who made the sun and gave us life, the preacher argues, do we have a chance of finding meaning and purpose. Paul seems to be channeling his inner preacher here in chapter 15. So notice the repetition of the language of vanity in, in this reading. Verse 2, verse 10, verse 14. And then the futility of resurrectionless faith in verse 17. Paul is saying that without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, everything is vanity. 
And so he concludes with this crushing line in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I remember a a conversation I had in college with a friend who wasn't a Christian. Uh, One evening we were talking about faith and he asked, he, he, he said, but John, what if it's not true? What if it's all a lie? I was a little taken aback and I wasn't quite sure what to say, but eventually I said something along the lines of, well, even if it's not true, then I will have lived a good moral life and made other people's lives better as a result, and that would make it all worthwhile. Now, it seemed like a pretty good answer at the time, with, with a ring of sort of self-sacrificial nobility to it. Too bad I was totally wrong. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I am a fool. I am a fool. I have completely wasted my life. What we are doing right now is a waste of your time. Everything that we stand for or say we stand for is a lie. Our good deeds, they're meaningless. And man, we should be pitied because this is pretty pitiful. There's nothing noble about Christianity if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. Now, Paul's argument continues throughout the rest of the chapter, but we're going to stop here this morning and take a step back to reflect just a little bit on what Paul's initial argument means for us. And there are two things in particular that I want to reflect on briefly. The first is this. Jesus still has a body. Jesus still has a body. Jesus walked out of the tomb with his body intact, and when he ascended to heaven 40 days later, he ascended bodily. He now reigns over heaven and earth, not as a formless spirit, but as a man. And one day, he'll return to this earth in judgment as a man. Jesus is God, and he is still also very much a human being. I think we're probably more like the Corinthians than we like to admit. We believe in some kind of afterlife, some kind of spiritual existence, but the resurrection of dead bodies is really hard for us to get our heads around. And to be honest, we don't even like our bodies all that much, do we? We have a hard time imagining being stuck with them forever. But when Jesus rose from the dead, we got a glimpse of our future. Why does this matter? Well, it matters first because it's a reminder of what an amazing thing it is to be human. Being human and having a body is so incredible that God himself chose to become one of us forever. We are astonishing creatures and we should treat our bodies, even these weak, broken, pre-resurrection bodies that we have now. We should treat them with the awe and respect that Jesus himself showed by taking one on himself. The second reason this matters is it's, it's an affirmation of God's love. In order to save us from our sin and to redeem us for all eternity, Jesus became one of us. Consider this, he loves you so much that he chose to take on a body like yours forever. 
If you have ever wondered what you're worth, that's your answer. If you've ever wondered if you really mean something to someone, this is God's response. The risen body of Jesus is the affirmation of God's extraordinary love. Here's the second thing I want to reflect on from this reading. If the heart of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead, then what is most important in Christianity is not what we do for Jesus, but what he has already done for us. So Christianity is built entirely on the belief that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus walked out of the tomb after being dead for three days. By doing so, he destroyed the power of sin and death and proved that he was God, which meant that everything he did and taught during his life were the actions and words of God himself. It all comes down to the resurrection. Because of this, the gospel is something that we believe, not something that we do. Of course there are consequences when we choose to believe it. We learn to live differently. Our lives are transformed. But what is of first importance is what God has done, not what we have done. Paul doesn't end his letter with the golden rule. Chapter 13 doesn't come last. He ends with an invitation to hope in the resurrection. The gospel is a gift, not a reward. I can't emphasize enough how important this is. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You don't have to earn his affection or justify your existence. You don't have to build up a resume of good deeds. What you have to do is believe that Jesus conquered death and that he did so for a reason, to save you, to redeem you. Everything else follows from there. If you've never stopped to wrestle with this claim, I want to beg you to do so now. Life comes down to this one question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And we're here because the answer is yes. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, risen and ascended, reigning over us as a man, we praise you. We praise you that you rose, that death doesn't get the final word, that we have a true hope, that we are truly redeemed, that we are magnificently and gloriously loved. Help us to believe. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.